We are in a series called The Last Days in the World to Come. Uh, It's really on eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. And I suggested when I started this that uh, Christian understanding is very incomplete because we have a tendency to side issue Israel and the covenants and the kingdom of God. Uh, And we begin focusing on going to heaven. Jesus coming back, we go to heaven. And that kind of misses the point of the text. Um, so I talked about the creation and its purpose on the, uh, the first, uh, well, I did the series beginning, but then last time, talked about that. Um, and uh, this week I want to focus on uh, the creation of man, the circumstances of death, and the hope of the resurrection. So I've called it man, life, death, and resurrection. I'm trying to build from the broadest perspective down to the narrow details so that when we talk about the sequencing and the details, you have a, you have a foundation uh, upon which to understand that. So I uh, suggested that we were given enough information to know the events when they are immediately happening but not enough to predict them in advance. Because Jesus, the angels, the prophets, and the apostles do not know the time which is reserved to the Father only. You'll notice today when we did the principles of Judaism that the last one says that there will be a resurrection when the desire emanates from the Creator. Right? Uh, The Father has set that uh, to His own time and those who try to uh, predict it We'll miss it. What we know is it'll be in the last days, right? Uh, Last week, I set the larger backdrop for the doctrine, the creation, and its purpose. We looked at the earth of long ago, that one before the flood. We looked at the present heavens and earth and the new heavens and earth that will follow this one. And we looked at the overlap of those uh, three periods and saw that there was a pattern in the, uh, the time of Noah that will be seen again as in the days of Noah. And so that hinge point between the earth of long ago and the present heavens and earth will be also the hinge point of the uh, present heavens and earth and the new heavens and earth as they will will take place. Today we're going to look at uh, man as a significant part of that process. And the text that was just read is related to the text that I'm going to ask you to begin with. We're going to turn to Psalm 144, verses 3 and 4. And in the bulletin, I didn't give you every passage. We're going to do quite a Bible drill today. I hope you're, you're ready for sword drills. Um, a lot of this is material you know, but I want to show that it is ubiquitous in the Scriptures. It's everywhere, so that you don't see this as a side issue. It is the issue. Uh, So in Psalm 144, verses 3 and 4, the scripture says this, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Now that echoes, if you will, the passage that was just read. This this statement actually was first spoken by Job. And we see it in, in, the, in the book of Job. It's then repeated in Psalm 8. It's repeated here in Psalm 144. And again, it's quoted in the book of Hebrews. Uh, this is a significant issue because 
Uh, it is the starting place for today's message, but it's also about the idea that against the whole of God's creation, we could easily ask, what is man? We're more mere breath in, in that sense. We're just very fleeting. And our days are like a passing shadow. So we're going to take a look at some passages real quick. I'm going to not talk much about them because I'm trying to get to the part that we need to focus on. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, we are told that God formed man from the dust of the ground and He breathed into man the breath of life and we became a living uh, soul. Nefesh is the Hebrew word. Uh, you are a soul. Uh, you are spirit, this breath that's been placed in. You are physical. Those have been combined and together you then become a living soul. What I like to say, and you've heard me say it before, we're basically breathing dirt. Uh, if you think about that, we're not, we're not very substantial. Um, we, uh, we're not... Uh, we're, we're somewhat a combination of the spiritual world and we're a combination of this present material world that, as we know, is cursed. Uh, that, that's a fragile situation. And so the idea of what are we that you are mindful of us? Well, what's unique about that is that God spoke everything else into existence but with mankind, he formed us from that dust of the ground and breathed it. There is a direct act of God that causes us to be fragile and fleeting though we are. So, we look at this, uh, more importantly, in the book of Job. So, if you just turn back one book uh, to the... Oh, well, not Genesis, from, from the psalm. I didn't have you turn to Genesis. Turn back from, Genesis, from uh, Psalm then to Job chapter 7. Uh, you will see Job is in the midst of difficulty. Welcome to life. And in that context, he says these words. Remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes on me, but I will not be. He's talking about how easy we are subject to death. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol, we'll talk about this later, this heaven and hell and all these terms. Um, he goes down to Sheol, does not come back up. He will not return again to his house, speaking of the body. Nor will his place know him. Anymore. So the idea here is that he is saying, Man, I'm going to vanish. I'm, I'm going to die. I, and that'll be it. And he will ask a question that follows up on this in a little bit, but I want to zero in on this idea that we are mere breath and that we are easily. Um, uh, uh, Fragile in this fleeting life. In Psalm 103, verse 13. 
13 to 16, we're, we're told, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. <laughs> he made it. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. And when the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no more. We have all been near fields where grass grows. And, you know, the rain has come and it looks great. And then you drive by again and the ground is brown. And you can't tell where that grass was or where those flowers were. It just goes. It just goes. We pop up and then we're gone. So this notion is a common biblical theme. Turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, 38. And again, I could go on ad nauseum here, but I'm just trying to give you some basic text so that you know that. This is talking about God dealing with Israel. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity, and he did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger, and he did not arouse his wrath, because he remembered that they were flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. God is compassionate, he's careful, and he's gentle with us, because he knows how frail we actually are. We don't know how frail we are. But God knows. And then in Isaiah chapter 40. I'm trying to keep these all within a reasonable biblical turn. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 40 verse uh, 7 and 8. God says the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Surely the people are grass, and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We have a tendency to think that the word is fragile, and we're substantial, and it's just the opposite. He is substantial, and His word endures forever. We endure for a little while, just a little while. And so finally, we get to Psalm 90. And there I want to look at a little longer passage. Psalm chapter 90, beginning at verse uh, 3, going to verse 12. Speaking to God from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's passed. By the way, all of these texts you're going to hear when we talk about these events, and it's because they're reminding us of this context. And like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood. Remember Noah? They fall asleep in the morning. They are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes And it sprouts anew towards evening it fades and withers away. We have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you. 
our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh, a breath. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, maybe 90 years. Some people stretch that to 100, but even then, a day is as a thousand years. It's nothing. Their pride is but labor and sorrow. Soon it is gone, and we fly away. Our breath leaves us. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That's the key here. We are to be focused on this life, numbering that these days are short. And the things that are done to build up this world, remember last week? The things that are done to build up this world, all of that stuff's going to burn. All the reputations, all the buildings, all the sports arenas, all the stuff, it's all going away. You're going to go away sooner, but it's going away. What manner of people ought we to be, Peter says, knowing that these things are going to pass away and there will be a new heaven and new earth? Maybe we should be thinking about that. Maybe we should be preparing for that. So we are fragile and this life is short. But not only that, we are subject to death. Not just death of the body but death of the whole soul, death of the person. So I want to talk a few verses about that, then I'm going to get to the issue of resurrection. In Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, God says, You may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. You know the story. Chapter 3, God judges them and says, The ground will be cursed and you will slave and labor in it. It's going to be a pain to work in this earth. And you're going to eat your bread by the sweat of your brow. And then you're turn, returning to the dust. For dust you are, and unto dust shall you return. And then they're driven out from God's presence. There is the death of the body, which is the spirit, the breath leaving the body. And there is the uh, death of the soul, where body and spirit together are separated from God. And that is the, what the Bible will call the second death. That's the one that should be of great concern. Jesus said, don't, don't worry about those who can kill the body. But fear Him who can destroy body and spirit in Gehenna, in the lake of fire. We'll talk about that later. Ecclesiastes, chapter 11 through uh, chapter 12, which is a relatively short passage, but an important one. Uh, and it, it'll take all my work to avoid doing a full commentary on this, so I'll try not to do it. Verse 9, 
Rejoice, young man. Young man means you're somewhere between puberty and the age of 30. So if you're past 30, you're not a young man. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. And let your days be pleasant during youth, young manhood. That up to age 30. Because it's downhill from there. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Enjoy this life, God says, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for these things. So stay within the guidelines of God. Remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain, chronic pain from your body. Because childhood and the prime of life are like that. They're fleeting. And as you get older, there's going to be enough grief. There's going to be enough uh, pain. And there's going to be enough frustration. And if you've been hanging on to all that stuff as you get older, you're going to be overwhelmed. So remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. That's why confirmation takes place as the onset of youth. And the years draw near when you say, I'm not having a great day. <laughs> there's not a lot of good stuff going on. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Now he's going to be very descriptive. In that day the watchman of the house tremble. You're going to start shaking with a tremor. I already got mine. The mighty men stoop. Your legs start kind of shrinking on you. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. You start losing your teeth. And those who look through windows grow dim. Begin to get cataracts. The doors of the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low and one will arouse at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song will sing softly. You're going to lose your hearing, but it's going to be tricky. You're going to lose the deep sounds. You'll be able to hear that little cricket in the corner. But the voice, the range of the voice, you won't be able to hear. So you keep turning the TV up. There will be explosions that you can't hear. You'll hear real high tenny things, but you can't hear what they're saying. Because that part goes. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and terrors on the road. You, you're not as sure-footed as you used to be. The almond tree blossoms. Gray hair. The grasshopper drags himself along. You get up and go. Got up and went. And the caperberry is ineffective. Caperberry is the ancient world Viagra. I love that. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go into the streets. So keep God in mind in your youth. Before the silver cord is broken, the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel of, at the cistern is crushed. All the inner organs start failing. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit return to God who gave it. In this reality and this world, it's all vanity. It's not going to last, and neither are you. So teach us to number our days, to apply our hearts to wisdom, Scripture says. Now James in 2.26 says, that the body without the spirit is dead. When we die, it is not the spirit that dies. The spirit returns to God. It is the body that dies. And many times you, you just see that last breath as they breathe out. In Genesis 35, uh, Rachel, 
is giving birth to Benjamin. And as her breath is, is exiting, she calls him the son of my sorrow. And uh, his dad will call him the son of my strength. In John 19, Jesus on the cross says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. And the spirit is released to return to God who gave it. We all have an appointment with death. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Well, that's the one I marked. I should use that. <laughs> Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. You know this passage. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait Him. We are all appointed to die and we are all appointed to judgment. We're back to that word again. In, use life, but know that God will bring you to judgment for it. Here, everyone's appointed to die and then there's judgment. So, we yearn for the salvation of the Lord through Jesus, which will address our sin and our physical death, but He also addresses not only our physical death, but spiritual death, the death of the whole soul. The death of the body is the result of the frailty of this life and our sin, and all are subject to it. But the death of the soul is the whole person separated from God and, and the abundant life of the world to come. And I'm going to talk about this later in this series. We talk about being saved. Judaism doesn't talk about being saved. They talk about inheriting the world to come. That's what they mean by what we mean by salvation. God will save the entire creation and we will inherit the world to come. Uh, we think of salvation of, I'm on my way to heaven. I'm going to make heaven my home. We use all those kind of phrases that are not exactly correct. And we'll talk about that later, but I want to get the foundation set. So, we are destined to be resurrected. Whether you are a believer or not a believer, you are destined to be resurrected. Because the human being is intended to be body and soul. Or, in the words of the old rock and roll song, heart and soul. Heart being the inner man, right? So, back to Job. This time, chapter 14. And we'll spend a little time there. Job 14, beginning uh, at verse 1. Job becomes this foundation of asking, What is man that you are mindful of him? And why are we so frail and subject to death? And now he says this, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain as that breath leaves. You begin to hear a pattern? Scripture's filled with this. Christianity is not filled with this anymore. This is why all the old hymns, one verse is about death. News choruses, nothing's about death. 
You may also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. There's that judgment again. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. We are undone. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his day like a hired man. In this, in this world we labor. This is why the Shabbat is so important. Every day is a day of work. And there's a day of rest that says, Ah, Beulah land, the land of, of, of the home place. Now there is hope for a tree, he says, verse 7, when it is cut down, it will sprout again. We had a tree in our backyard. It was a pepper tree. I hated that tree. We'd cut that booger down and it would grow back. Not only that, it'd bring ten friends. You know, they'd start sprouting up from everywhere. So he says there's hope for a tree. When it's cut down, it'll sprout again and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water, it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. But a man dies and lies down. He expires. And where is he? As water evaporates from the sea, as the river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer the end of this age. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. Again, we'll talk about this. That you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. When the judgment of God strikes this earth, it might be good to be dead. That you would set a limit for me and remember me. Now the great question of Job, verse 14. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. There's the resurrected body. You will call and I will answer you. Lazarus, come forth. You will long for the work of your hands. We were created by the hand of God. For now you number my steps and you do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you wrap up my iniquity. You're dealing with my sin, God. You will save me by grace. The mountains will crumble away and the rocks will move from its place and the water wears away stones and the torrents wash away the dust of the earth. You will destroy all of man's hope in himself. You forever overpower him and he departs. You change his appearance and send him away. There is a hope for resurrection that Job, considered the oldest book in the biblical text, addresses. I want you to turn with me to Daniel, the very last chapter of Daniel. Daniel 12. 
Daniel sees an enormous amount about the end of time. The last days and all that's going on. And remember where Daniel is. Daniel is in Babel. Israel's been scattered. And Judah has been taken captive. And the promised land and the promised hope and all that stuff seems gone. They have lamented the destruction of the temple and the house of God. And he is told, now at that time, this end of time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people Israel, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, we're going to see that theme, and we'll talk about it later. The world is going to have a period of tribulation that will make Everything that's happened so far looked like nothing. Keep that in mind next time you read or hear about the Holocaust. Or you read about what Nero did to Christians. Those are a cakewalk compared to what's going to happen. At that time, your people, Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those, many of Israel, will sleep in the dust of the ground and will awake. These to everlasting life. But there will be others who will be raised to disgrace and everlasting contempt. It's very important to know that virtually everybody is going to be raised from the dead. There will be some who will be raised from the dead and will be transformed. As Job says, my change will come. And there are others who are going to come back in the same condition they left. Fragile, fleeting, subject to sin, breathing dirt. Oh God, don't bring me back that way. Isaiah chapter 26. Beginning at verse 11. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Lord, you will establish peace for us. This is Israel. Since you have also performed for us all your works, O Lord our God, other masters besides you have ruled us. Israel's been scattered into all the earth. And God says, you're going to serve other people. And you're going to long for me. You alone, we confess your name. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them. You have wiped out all remembrance of them. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. He's ultimately going to do that. O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer, but your chastening was upon them. As a pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus we were before you, O Lord. We were pregnant, writhing in labor. We gave birth as it seems only to wind. 
we could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. God, we tried everything. People died and they didn't come back. And we tried to do it by the strength of our own hand, which is a waste of time. So listen to what he says now in verse 10. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For the dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Resurrection. And what is said to those spirits? Come, my people, enter into your rooms. I go to prepare a place for you, right? And close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. When the wrath of God comes out, He's telling His people, stay with me. They say He's over there, don't go there. They say He's over here, don't go there. When the wrath of God happens, just hunker down and wait for the salvation of the Lord. For behold, the Lord is about to come out of His place. To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed. And there will no longer cover her slain. The dead will lie out. And the birds of the field, the scripture says, will come and eat the corpses. It will take seven months to, to burn the weapons. There is a battle coming. And we're not fighting the battle. But we will win. And Israel will win. In John chapter 6, Jesus says in verses 37 to verses 40, This is the will of God, that those who come to me, I will not reject, and I will raise them up in the last day. At the death of of Lazarus in John chapters 11 verses 17 to 27. Jesus comes to the house and the sisters say, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And he said, your brother will live again. They said, we know. In the last day. They knew this doctrine. Jesus said, but you don't know. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, though he were dead, he will live. And the one who lives when I return will never die. Do you believe this? And they said, Lord, we believe you are the one who was sent by God. Now he raises Lazarus. And as I always say, that was not the resurrection that we want. Because Lazarus had to die again. It was just a little glimpse of the power and authority of Jesus. When he calls us forth, we will be changed. As Job says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, as Paul says. You have to see these verses coming together or you will create a doctrine that isn't true based on true words. So now, I've just got time to quickly go through 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15. I have a whole other page here that I'll have to do in two weeks because I have to talk about how this works. But let me at least do the 1 Corinthians passage. 
in the first 11 verses, he is going to talk about the gospel. The good news is resurrection. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you have received and by which you stand, and also by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, what I received, that Messiah died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Those Scriptures are the Torah and the Prophets. That He was buried and that He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. Not the Gospels, they're not written yet. He's talking about the Torah and the Prophets. And that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the Twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom remain alive till now, but some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all to me, as one who was born uh, late. I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So whether it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. Little word about grace. The more grace you have received, the harder you labor for the Lord. To whom much has been forgiven, Jesus said, they love much. Okay, So your life shows how much grace and forgiveness you have experienced. Not how much you need. Resurrection then is the message of the gospel. Now in verses 12 to 19, he's going to uh, talk about the resurrection of Christ and resurrection itself is foundational uh, to all of our hope. So he says these words. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, we don't actually say there's no resurrection of the dead. What we say is, oh, I guess there's a resurrection of the dead. But when you die, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to be dancing the streets of gold. It's going to be great. And we're all going to join him there. And that's not the focus of the scriptures. The focus of the scriptures is that we will be resurrected and we will be whole again here on earth. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain and your faith is worthless. And we're found false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised the Messiah whom he did not raise if in fact the dead aren't raised. And if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if he has not been raised, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep, believing in Christ, have perished. They're gone. And it's over. If we have hoped in Messiah, in this life only, we are of all men to be pitied. He's not appealing to, yeah, but we'll be in heaven. He's not going there, because that's not the biblical doctrine. So then in verses 20 to 28, he tells us about this resurrection. 
But now Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of those who asleep. You know this. You give first fruits. What is that? It's a portion that is given to represent the whole. He is risen as the first fruits of all who will rise. Since by man came death, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam we all die, so in Messiah we will all be made alive. But each one of us in our own order. And he's now going to give us the order of the resurrection. So let me tell you what the order of the resurrection is. The first fruits of the resurrection took place almost 2,000 years ago. And we celebrate it every Holy Week. It is the first fruits. We go out and gather the first fruits. We think of the first fruits. He's the first fruits. His resurrection guarantees it all. Then he says, after that, those who are Messiahs at his coming, believers, will be raised next. Remember what Daniel said? There's a resurrection of, the, of those to life and a resurrection of those to shame. The next resurrection, when the Lord returns, will be the resurrection for those of us who believe. And then, he says, comes the end. At the very end, there is an ultimate resurrection of all the dead. And that will be when he hands over the kingdom to God and the Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. In other words, he's going to come back as the high priest. He's going to raise the believers, establish the kingdom, and the rest of the dead are not going to rise yet. This is what Revelation says. Chapter 20, you can check it out for yourself. We will see the kingdom. And at the end of the kingdom, when Satan is released, then the armies are going to gather around him. He's going to call down fire and that's the end of this world. Then all the dead are raised. And John says, I saw them all. And where are they raised? They will stand before the judgment. And at the judgment, the books will be open and they will be judged out of the books for what they did in this life. Everything we've done in this life will come under judgment. And those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will live and the other ones will be thrown into the lake of fire. And he says this is the second death, the lake of fire. So you can see a little bit of that order coming in the order of the resurrection. If you can give me just a few minutes, I can get this all done. Now, in verses 29 to 30, he says, and I'll summarize it the best I can. What will we do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? Brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in, in Messiah Jesus, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, if this isn't going to happen, if that's not really what's going to happen, why are you baptized for a dead guy? I'm baptized with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. He says, if, if there's no resurrection, he didn't rise, what are you going to do? Well, that water doesn't mean anything. Why are we suffering? Let's just eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. Interesting, that's Ecclesiastes. There's two ways to do Ecclesiastes. 
There's nothing in the future I'm going to get. Everything I can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or Ecclesiastes. Eat and drink and enjoy the labor of your hand, knowing we shall be brought into judgment for these things. Stay within the commandments. Because this group hopes in resurrection, and this group hopes that nothing will happen after we die. So, if you can't continue to read this, he's going to also talk about the body, and we'll talk about that at another time. Many believe, especially liberal theologians, but this is even true among conservatives, that resurrection is unnecessary. They think that death is graduation to heaven and all the promises will be there and that it is better to be dead and be with the Lord. This is faulty theology. And it's not completely wrong, it's just mostly wrong. Okay? It's like the princess bride. Not, comp- not dead, just mostly dead. Okay? It misses the point of the future resurrection, restoration, and the new creation. So I want to remind you of a text, and then we'll go to our last text. Romans 8, Paul says, I believe that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And he's talking about the glory at the resurrection when the Lord returns. Not in heaven. The glory in the kingdom that's going to happen when the Lord returns and we're raised from the dead. He says, whatever suffering we have now isn't worthy to be compared. And whatever happens in this life, life, death, principalities, powers, things present, things future, all that stuff, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He is focused on the resurrection and the kingdom to come, not on going to heaven. So somebody will say, didn't Paul say that to die and be with Christ is better? I always get that. Paul said, it's better to be uh, with Christ. Yes, he did. But he didn't say what you think. Okay? Ecclesiastes says, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. So better is not best. That's just a comparison. Is it better to be dead than in this life with suffering? Yes, but it is not the best. So I want you to see his words in the context that he uses them. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul has already explained all of this to the Corinthians. They are fully aware of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So in 4.16, he says these words. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. Okay, he's focused on the resurrection. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparisons. For while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the new heaven, new earth, the kingdom that's coming. That is unseen now, and that's permanent. 
What we see now, this one is passing away. We are coming apart on the outside. Bill and I were talking about that earlier today. And we are to be renewed every day because we're going to get a new one of these in the new situation. And that's what he talks about in chapter 5. We know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, that sounds, the way it's translated, like when this body goes, I have another body in heaven. He's not talking about that. If you read Paul, when we talk about him talking about the, 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 the body, he says there is, the first body is earthly. The second body is heavenly. He's not talking about it being in heaven. He's talking about it having the, the, the qualities of immortality. This mortal must put on immortality, he says. So he's not talking about you have a body in heaven awaiting you. Indeed, in this house we groan, we're back to Romans, longing to be clothed with our dwelling which is from heaven. It's from the heavenly, it's made of the heavenly, it's not in the heavens. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Those who have passed away are without their body, and that's what he's referring to as naked. He says it's not what we want. We long for the resurrection, not for the release of this body. He's not saying you have a body in heaven and you're out running around in it. They are waiting. We'll see plenty of scripture about them saying, when are we going to go back? When are we getting our body? And he'll say, rest a little while. And he gives them white robes. Temporary dwellings awaiting the permanent one. For indeed, if we in this tent we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. He's talking about the resurrection body. For he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, we are of good courage in knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord. And we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what is he saying? There's enough trouble down here. I'd like to lay this body down and be with the Lord, which is better. But it's not complete. What's complete will be when we have the new body and we are with the Lord in the kingdom as He has set it up. That is why the scripture says in Revelation 14, Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit from now on, for they rest from their labors and their reward awaits them. They're waiting for the resurrection and the reward. There is an inner state, intermediate state, between the time of our death and the time of our resurrection that I will talk about at another time. But it is not the kingdom. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the singing and dancing that everybody talks about. Because that takes away that promise 
being connected to the hope of resurrection. So let me give you one more verse, and then I'm done. This is the last one. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in this flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed. I'm torn in two directions. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is much better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain in this flesh and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith, so that your confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you uh, again. So Paul says, it is better to be with Christ, even disembodied, than to be here embodied and suffering. But he is not saying everything that we hope for is there. There is a time when he will return and God will bring them with him. Their bodies will rise and we will ever be the Lord, with the Lord in the kingdom. And that's the best. So, if you remember the old Sears catalog. They used to have three of everything. The first one was called Good. The second one was called better. And the third one was called best. So what is good? Good is this life. This life is good. There's good in this life. God created it to be good. And there is good that we can rejoice in and we should gather up that good while we live in this life. But to depart from this life, particularly when suffering comes, and be with the Lord is better. But in the resurrection and the kingdom to come, when we are finally embodied with immortality and have the same body that Jesus had in his resurrection and all the promises of God are, are brought into fullness, that is best. And we have made the better the enemy of the best in theology. And we should not do that. Therefore, we bury our dead in hope of the sure and certain resurrection and the return of the Lord and the kingdom to come. And that is important to know or you're going to miss out on all that the return of Christ is about. And I'll talk about that stuff later. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...